0: hi you hi i'm being lazy i see that you're probably the only one okay so the question that the gemara asks is where do we find haman in the torah where is there a hint to haman in the torah now the reason they ask this question is because as you may know both purim and hanukkah are not holidays that are at all written about in the five books of moses right There is nowhere in the Torah that says thou shalt have a day of Purim and get drunk and and put on costumes and go to your, you know, go to your friends' houses and deliver all kinds of goodies, etc. Just like there's nowhere in the Torah where it tells us to light the menorah. Okay? These are rabbinical holidays. These are holidays that the rabbis decided when those events happened that they're worthy of making a holiday. Over, I mean, in modern times we have something like that Yom HaAtzmaut, okay, which actually is a contentious issue. Many Jews do not say special prayers on Yom HaAtzmaut because they don't believe that the rabbis really have that power to make a new holiday and actually have a prayer service. We say Hallel, right? Hallel are the praises that we normally add on Passover, on Shavuot, on the. Min- big holidays. So some people will say it without a blessing. Anyway, I'm not going to get into that whole thing. But the point is, is the idea is, is that even though there's nothing um, straightforward in the Torah that says you should celebrate Purim or you should celebrate Hanukkah, the rabbis are asking, there must be an allusion to it in the Torah. Now, one of the allusions, for example, for Hanukkah is that the 36th word in the Torah, starting from the beginning of the Torah comes out to being the word or, okay? So there's one example, for example, where they say, how many candles do we light on Hanukkah? 36 candles, right? So here's a connection somehow that the Torah is giving a hint that in the future, there's going to be something to do with or and the number 36, right? Which, And we have the same thing actually with all the different places that the Jews camped in the desert. One of them is called Hashmonai. If you remember the Hashmonaim, from the Hanukkah story, right? So also it might be their 36th encampment or something like that, okay? I don't remember exactly, but it's got some kind of significance that it's hinting that even once the Chumash is closed and the Megillahs and the holy canon, so to speak, has been closed, there's going to be these holidays that are going to come later, okay? And these holidays became very, very important because... The poor story takes place after we've we've been exiled from Israel, okay? We've been kicked out. Everybody knows the song by the rivers of Babylon where we sat down and wept, right? We have been kicked out of Israel for the first time. It's the first of four exiles. We are now living in the fourth exile, which is considered the longest and the most difficult in many ways. Okay, exile always connotes a time of tremendous darkness. It also connotes a time of Hester panim, which is the idea of God hiding his face. By the way, they also ask the question in the Gemara, where is there an allusion to Esther in the Torah? And that comes out later in the Torah in Devarim, in Deuteronomy, where God says on that day, Hastir astir panim, I will surely hide my face. So the rabbis say, Oh, this is an allusion to the time period of Purim when God, so to speak, hid his face. Okay, and the Jewish people had been their first temple had been completely destroyed, right? And they were exiled to Persia. Okay, now what about Haman? Where do we find Haman in the Torah? So let's just do this because this is going to lead into our discussion, hopefully, about anger unless I just get so fixated on the Purim story because it's so incredible. And I've just been teaching it all day here and there. So whatever. Okay, so where do you find Haman in the Torah? So if if you guys know Hebrew, in Yud Aleph on page 16, basically what's going on here is where do we find him? We find him in the Garden of Eden. Right at the very beginning of the Torah, okay, and we find him right after Adam and Chava have eaten from the forbidden tree, right? And God basically comes to them and says, "Hamin eats, right? What have you done? If you look at, have you, if you look in the English under number eleven, it says, "Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat?" Now, the rabbis say if you look at that word Hameen, it's the same word. All you have to do is change the, the vowels underneath it. You get the name Haman, right? So then the next question is, why is he here? What is, what is? You know, why is Haman appearing in this part of the Torah? What does this have to do with Haman? Okay? So what's just happened in the Garden of Eden? They've eaten from the tree etc they, they start hiding from god but the main focus of this connection is god says to them i gave you every single tree i put you in paradise i gave you absolutely everything except for one thing i told you you cannot eat from this tree and now I've heard two opinions. One opinion I heard is that they were actually going to be permitted to eat from that tree. Had they lived through one Shabbat, they would have been on a certain level, an even higher level spiritually, which would have given, given them the ability to eat from that tree of good and evil. This is a whole subject in itself. Or even had they gotten to Shabbas, to Shabbat, they would have been able to, you know, maybe it would have been Friday night dinner. I don't know. Okay. Dessert. But the point is, is they didn't make it, but the other, the main thing here is Hashem is saying, I don't understand. I gave you everything. I created the entire world for you. I put you in this incredible garden. I gave you one mitzvah, one mitzvah. Don't eat from that tree. And you went ahead and did it. Okay. Now, of course we know the nachash, the snake in the story represents the eight Sahara it represents temptation it represents you know independence from God wanting to do things my way you know like every two-year-old my way me 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 it's got to be my way well we're just big two-year-olds in many ways when it comes to our relationship with God you know I'm gonna I want to decide don't tell me what to do right so the point is is what what does this have to do with Haman? So we all know the, the basic story of the Megillah. One thing we all know is about Mordechai, the Jew, who what? What does he not do in the Purim story? He will not bow down to Haman. Now we know about Haman. He was one of the wealthiest people that ever lived. He was promoted by the king of the time who ruled the entire world at that time to be literally second in command, almost like. First, really, because Ahasuerus gave him the ring to be able to make proclamations and decrees or gave him permission to use things with their rings, right? And so he had everything. Not only that, we know he had 10 sons who were hung, but we're told he had hundreds of kids, whatever that means, okay? He had everything anybody could ever want to be what? The happiest guy in the world. But? There's this one Jew, Mordecai, and every time I see him, even though everybody else is bowing down and getting down to the ground and doing, you know, giving me the most tremendous honor and homage that any human being could ever get, when I see that Mordechai, I it, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Right? I, I want it all. I want it all. So this is one of the main reasons that Haman, right, Appears in this part of the Torah because again, we understand that, you know, a person can be at the heights and have everything, but all they need is one hamarsha. Do you remember that word from English literature? One character flaw, right? In this case, arrogance, which sometimes comes together with high stations in life, right? And that one fault that one flaw, not that he didn't have others, but this one is highlighted here, right? This caused him to go from the highest heights to the bottom of the barrel, right? We know that the whole Megillah is basically how everything turns around. And Haman, who prepares a gallows for Mordechai, ends up being hung on the same gallows that he prepared for that Jew who wouldn't bow down to him. Okay. so the reason I'm starting with this is because obviously Haman got angry, right? And anger, which is going to be the topic that we're going to continue with maybe after Purim. Maybe I'm going to talk more about Purim tonight just so we're all ready for the holiday, if that's, if that's okay with you guys. But Haman shows us very clearly the uh, connection between arrogance and anger, And it's not only the humans of the world, each one of us has to understand that when we give into anger or when we get angry, it's a moment of eclipsing, completely eclipsing the other person and being completely right. We all know when we're in a state of rage or anger, there's nothing else but me. It's all about me. What have you done to me? How could you say that to me? The me becomes very, very large. And the you is very small. But the me is very, very big. Okay? So anger and arrogance definitely go together. Now, there's another place in the Megillah. Just thinking. Um, right at the very beginning. You know, the Megillah opens with this incredible story. This incredible party. Right? Is everybody familiar with the Magilla at all? Yeah? Do you know it? Okay. What are they having this? He throws this party that lasts for 180 days. Anybody know what he's celebrating? Anybody know what the party's about? Exactly. Thank you. You're going to be shocked. Say that a little louder. Right. Okay. So let's let's um, let's um, flesh this out a little bit. So right at the very beginning of the Megillah, we're told that you know King Achashveros ruled the entire world at the time, and he made this incredible party that lasted for 180 days, and it describes the opulence, and it describes how there was wine flowing at this party, and no two people drink out of the same goblet. This was the extent of his wealth, and What was he celebrating? Sorry, I forgot your name. Vivian. Believe it or not, this party was celebrating the destruction of the first temple, okay, which happened 70 years before. It was celebrating the fact that Jeremiah, who was the prophet at the time, prophesied that in 70 years, the Jews are going to go back to Jerusalem and they're going to rebuild their temple, Now, all of the kings up till Ahasuerus were counting, were very calculatedly trying to figure out when those 70 years begin and end, okay? And each one had figured it out wrongly and bad things that happened to them, okay? But Ahasuerus was very, very sure that the 70 years had ended, the prophecy had not come true, and this was worth celebrating. Okay, by the way, he's married to who? Vashti. Does anybody know who's, who, who Queen Vashti comes from? She's Persian, excellent. She's, well, she's actually Babylonian. She's the granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar who's destroyed the first temple of the Jews. Um, so Ahasuerus has married incredible royalty the granddaughter of the greatest anti-Semite in those days that destroyed the Jewish temple, the first temple, and after which we were exiled. Can anybody know why the first temple was destroyed according to what we did wrong as Jews? Anybody know about that? Three sins, three terrible averas, as we say, that actually were taught. The halacha is that a Jew has to give up their life rather than do these three big ones. <clears throat> the three were murder, sexual immorality, and idol worship. Okay? So the Jews were guilty of all three in the times of the first Beta Mekdash. Jeremiah, the prophet who lived at the time, was telling the Jews to clean up their act, or else the temple will be destroyed and you will be exiled. And very few obviously listened. Okay? So now the Jews find themselves in Persia and how do they feel about themselves in their relationship to Hashem? Now that they've sort of assimilated as Jews will do into Persian society, marrying Persian non-Jewish wives, intermarriage is rampant. The people are spread out all over these 127 countries. Of course, they've risen to positions of power. They're probably more Persian than the Persians as Jews like to be, right? Mm-hmm and the story opens with the fact that they go they're so assimilated they're so far gone that they actually attend the party that's Mm -hmm. celebrating their demise okay now okay let's give another spin on this okay they didn't really want to go to the party they knew it was going to be celebrating their demise they still had enough jewish sensibility that that this, this bothered them okay But on the other hand, if we don't go, it won't look good for the Jews. It'll be bad for the Jews, right? It'll be bad for the Jews, right? People will start hating us. There'll be some anti-Semites in the crowd, right? We can't afford not to go to this party. Mordecai, and Mordecai, of course, is one of the last prophets, as Esther was one of the last prophetesses in this time period in Jewish history when the era of prophecy is about to end. They were near the end of the era, okay? And they're all saying, Mordechai, you don't know anything about politics, you know? Like, go back to the base medrash and do your learning, but you don't know what's going on in politics. If we don't go to this party, it's, 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 we can't. We got to go. We got to be there. So what's happening at this party? Okay, so there's two things. So on the one hand, we said they're assimilated, but there's another aspect of how the Jews feel. Imagine, they were living in Jerusalem with this incredible Beit HaMikdash where there were open miracles in this temple all the time. God was very available, so to speak. We can't even understand it, but in the time of prophecy, it was as if God was looking through a window. What does that mean, looking through a window? He could see us, but we could also see him. After we were exiled, we're told God is no longer looking through a window. He's looking through the lattice. Okay? He's looking through the blinds. He's picking up the blinds a little bit, and he's looking. This is called the time of Hester punning. Again, where do we find Esther? In this verse, on that day, I will surely hide my face and it's referring to the bad behavior of the Jewish people that warrants God being less available, less open. Of course, he never leaves us. And as one commentary says, even if his face is hidden, God's hand continues to be outstretched because he can't leave us. He loves us too much. And even because of our own folly and with all of the Uh, admonitions for us to stop misbehaving, right? God, of course, never leaves the Jewish people. He loves us the way a husband loves a wife. And that's the way it is, okay? But we're living in this time of tremendous darkness. What is Ahasuerus doing during this party, this 180-day party? We're told that every day he takes out six treasures that he has stolen from our temple. Okay. As a matter of fact, if you would have the McGill in front of you, which you do have it at the end of the Chumash, if you want to see this, okay? And how incredible. I think it would, I think it I hope it would be in this book. But at the very end of your Chumash, the Gill at Esther starts in page 1242, 52, sorry. Now if you go down to Pasak Vav or Just look, you will see there's one letter that's bold and large, bigger than all the other letters. Hur, excellent. Who said hur? You go to the front of the class. Excellent. Hur, okay. Now, why is that letter bigger? And not only that, remember, that means that, 1252, that means that in every Megillah, everywhere in the world where there are Jews, if you don't write the Megillah with that large hat, it is not a kosher Megillah. Just like if you know in the Torah, if the Torah was written a certain way, certain letters are bigger, certain letters are smaller, right? If you're missing that, then you don't have the divine Torah that we believe is the blueprint of creation and came from Hashem, right? God's instructions to the human to the human beings. So, what is this large Het doing there? All it says there in English is. There were hangings of white, fine cotton and blue wool. Well, what is that? So what's so significant about that? So the rabbis teach us. And again, without Torah Sheba al okay, we have two Torahs. By the way, the Torah begins with the letter Bet. It's an allusion to the fact that there's not just one Torah. There's two Torahs. There's what we call Torah Shebikhtah, the written Torah that you have in front of you. And then there's the oral Torah, which is what Moses spent 40 days on the mountain learning. Now, why do you have to have this oral Torah? Or you can take this written Torah, as we know, and make it into another religion, if you like. You can make it into Christianity. You can make it into Islam, if you like. Because if you don't have the oral tradition, then you can't really understand the written Torah. It's cryptic. Okay? It's like if you're sitting, if you miss a class in university one day and you ask your best friend to take notes for you, okay? And you know, you get you you take her notes home with you the next night to study, and you look at her notes, and it's like she's got all these little things that she does for like, you know, whenever she writes, I remember I had a friend every time it was the word the she'd make a check mark. Mm-hmm. And she used shorthand, right? And I never learned shorthand. What's this? What's that, right? So the point is, is I can't make sense of these notes because I don't know your secret little language that you've made up for yourself so that you don't have to write the whole thing out. Okay, so that's kind of what the oral Torah is to the written. It's like the explanation of the notes. Now, I'll just give you a simple example. In the written Torah, it says that you should wear phylacteries. You like that word, phylacteries? Now, if you don't have the oral Torah, you have no clue. I mean, I I know I'm supposed to wear a phylactery, but like, what's a phylactery, right? Like, we don't know what a phylactery is. You know, if I only have the written Torah, well, what is that? What do I wear? The written, the oral Torah explains what phylacteries are not only does it explain how you make them and that they have to be black and they have to be made out of leather and how you have to tie them and wear on your head by the way i just found out do you know where you put the fill in on your head you put it where the soft spot of a baby is you knew that wow i don't know why i knew that, but I knew that. that's cool and actually i heard heard a class from esther ween who gives very high torah I caught a few things, but she actually said that that's the part of the mind that the soul actually comes into the body through. Yeah. And that's the psyche, which, you know, is the most elevated part. And that's why she said, when you're a baby, it's opened up and, you know, where everybody's so scared to touch it and hurt the baby. Right. But it actually has that spiritual component that that's where the soul enters into the body. is that cool? Did you know that too? Yeah, but isn't it here? Yeah, anyway, whatever. But the point is, is that without the oral tradition, we would not know what phylacteries are. And there are many, many, many examples. And without the oral tradition, we would not know what this large het is alluding to either. So we're told through the oral tradition that the het, which equals the number, anybody, Kamatria, how's your math? Every eight, that's right, eight. Excellent, Mora, you go to the front of the class, you can be the Mora now. Okay, so the eight is alluding to the fact that Ahasuerus has the audacity to come out to this party dressed in the eight big day kahuna, the eight clo- eight articles of clothing that the holy high priest of the Jewish people wore when he served in the Beit HaMikdash, okay? Each one of these garments has tremendous significance. If he was missing one piece of it, you know, he couldn't go in there. He could even die in there if he wasn't in a perfect shape. You know, think of an athlete in the Olympics. You know, he had to be in perfect shape spiritually. Does everybody know that we used to tie a rope to the Kohen Gadol when he went in on Yom Kippur, to the Holy of Holies. The Jewish people waited outside to see, first of all, the rope was red, symbolizing sin, and the rope would turn white after the Kohen Gadol came out at the end of Yom Kippur, with Hashem basically saying, you're all forgiven, you know, get a new fresh start. But the other reason for the rope was that if the Kohen Gadol didn't make it, if there was some pigam, some blemish, some bad thought even, because you had to be on such a high level and so pure. And even the preparation for that day, right? Was so involved. If he wasn't, they'd be able to pull him out because he will will have died in that place of the most concentrated Kedusha of God's presence in the world, okay? Almost like Moshe going up to the top of the mountain. Only Moshe could go up there. If any others tried, it would have been immediate death. They weren't on the spiritual level to be able to get to, to get to the top of the mountain. Okay? All right. So, chet, just again, if there's a Megillah that doesn't have an enlarged chet, it's not kosher. Because everything in Torah, everything in the holy writings is, is teaching us something, is telling us something. It's cryptic. We have the oral tradition, so that we can we can undo it. We can figure it out. We can we can know what what the deeper meanings are there. Okay. So where do we go from here? Um, so yeah. So the last thing I want to say about the fact that the Jewish people went to this party now there's two opinions. Not only does it say that they went to the party, but worse than that, they enjoyed themselves; mm-hmm. they had a great time, while the Achashverosh is parading around in, in, the, in the in the in the. Okay, so what, is this, what did this reveal about where the Jewish people were holding, in terms of their sense of selves, and in terms of in terms of their relationship with Hashem? What do you think? I want to open that up to you. Hmm? A very low point. You know what? They felt like they'd lost favor with God completely. Like a kid, right? How can I ever say sorry again? They felt abandoned. They felt abandoned. Now, I just want to tell you another piece of history. While they were in Persia, by the way, There was a king, I can't remember his name, he's famous, Um, I don't know, I can't remember. He actually gave a call to the Jewish people that they can come back and rebuild their temple. Okay, this went on during those 70 years. And we're told that 24,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem, which sounds like a lot, but they said it was a trickle. It was hardly anybody. You know, I always liken it to like, you know, let's say tomorrow Mashiach came and, you know, he said, "Okay, everybody, we can all go back to Israel, you know. And, you know, Jews will be going like, no, I can't. I'm in the middle of of decorating my I, I mean, I'm putting a new addition on the house and we're planning to get a pool this summer. I mean, what do you mean go back? You know, not now. Right. So, you know, the same thing was going on there. But more than that, who said abandon? right? Abandoned, totally dejected. God doesn't love us anymore. We were kicked out of the Holy Land. We did really bad stuff. We didn't listen to the prophets. It's over. We've lost our mission. We've lost our purpose. You know, like when a person is so low that they say, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter. I've just sunk so low. I might as well just, you know, go to ground zero. And that's how the Jews were feeling. Okay. That's how the Megillah opens like that. Okay. Now we also have in the next chapter, we have the whole, uh, the whole chapter about how the king who's extremely drunk, right? How's, how am I doing with time? Okay. The king who is very, very drunk calls for his wife. What's her name? Vashti. Okay, I just want to show you, interesting. Whenever he talks about her, um, hold on. So it, it, you'll notice in Tess, right? It says, Gam Vashti Hamalka. Also Vashti the queen. Now we're going to see how sometimes she's called Vashti Hamalka and sometimes she's called Hamalka Vashti. It depends who's talking. Okay, whether the queen part comes first or the queen part, is back. okay, this is significant. Okay, but let's just see what happens here. Okay, so Vashti's also making a party. She's making this big party for the women. She's having her own little feast. And on the seventh day, when the king's heart is merry with wine, he orders all of his chamberlains. The first one's name is Mahuman, which by the way is going to be Haman okay it's a different name that's given him at this point it really means from mukhan that he's being prepared to be promoted but but eventually he'll be prepared to be hung on the gallows okay he's the first one there mukhan okay he orders all of his uh, chamberlains to to bring vashti the queen before the king wearing the royal crown to show off to the people and the officials her beauty for she was beautiful to look upon But Queen Vashti refuses to come at the king's command. Queen Vashti, here, do you see now? It's Queen Vashti, right? He wants Vashti, the queen, to come. And Queen Vashti says no. Now, why does it change like that? Why is that? Because Queen Vashti is actually the only of this couple who is from royal monarchy, who is from the aristocrat of Nebuchadnezzar, the king's granddaughter. And Haman, through the oral tradition we learned, was a mere stable boy in his earlier days who worked his way up through all kinds of machinations and devious schemes to become king of the entire world. So when he calls her, hey Vashti, get over here! Right? The, the, the sentence changes to when she refuses, Vashti. Hamalka Vashti, the Queen Vashti, who to herself. Listen, buddy, you know, you drunken stable boy. Don't tell me what to do. I'm the queen in this relationship. I'm King Nebuchadnezzar's granddaughter. You you better watch out, right? And this is what happens. So the seventh day, by the way, is an allusion to the fact that Queen Vashti deserved this death because one of the horrible things she used to do, and we have this concept in Judaism called mida keneged mida. Anybody heard that idea before? That measure for measure, you know, Shakespeare's famous play. This idea that everything comes back to you in the same measure, right? Whether for good or for bad. Okay. So the seventh day is alluding to Shabbos. Okay. This is when she was punished. And it's also alluding to the fact that she used to have all of these Jewish maidservants and she would make them work for her in the nude, naked, to degrade them. Yes. And that's why the rabbis tell us that when Achashverosh tells her to come out, it says, bring Vashti the queen before the king wearing the royal crown. And the rabbis say, wearing only the royal crown. (laughs) We want her to come to the party naked. And by the way, what's happened before this is that all of the drunken men, including Akashferosh at the party, where the wine is wine is a big theme throughout the Megillah, okay? And the power of wine to corrupt and the power of wine to ennoble. Okay? There's a saying, Nichnas yayin Yotse Sod. When wine goes in, the secrets come out meaning wine reveals who you really are. So when we're talking about King Ahasuerus, the boor, anti-Semite stable boy, he wants his wife to come out naked and show herself off, right? His true self, this king of the world comes out and this is what he wants his wife to do. She says no now, and of course she's punished and she comes out a little bit later with her head on a platter. Oh. Yeah, I just read that. I thought, you know what? That's important for us to know because we do not understand what kings were like in the olden days, even with their own wives, let alone, I don't do that. I don't do windows. You know, like, goodbye. You know, we don't get that. But that's what the world was like for a long, 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 long time. King Henry VIII. Off with your head, it was a real thing, okay? And Vashti, you know, Queen Vashti, okay? Doesn't make it, any questions at this point? No, okay, so oh. what happens after Queen Vashti doesn't come? Who remembers, what's next? Right, Mamuhan, Haman, okay? And if you look, look at this, it says those closest to him, Okay, so then the king's experts who knew the times. Oh, by the way, the reason he called her out in the first place is because they were arguing in their drunken stupor, which women are the most beautiful in my kingdom? And of course, you know, there were all kinds of different peoples that had joined together. It was Canada. It was multicultural, right? And of course, the king was saying, of all the women, my wife is the most beautiful of all of them, right? And I'm going to show you. Come on out here, Vashti. Right? And of course, then we know what happens. Okay. So now he's got no wife. Okay. But look what it says. It says, the King, therefore, became very incensed and his anger burned him. Hamelech became very incensed. I want to tell you one more cryptic thing in the Megillah when you go and hear it on Purim. We know that, first of all, there's only one Megillah where we have actually a mitzvah to hear every single word. You don't have to go and hear Megillah's Ruth on Shavuot, okay? You don't have to hear Shir Shirim, even though they read it on Passover, okay? But if you miss one word in the Megillah, you haven't done the mitzvah. Let's hold that question, okay? And the fact that you even have to hear it, why? Not only that, we're told that Purim is the only holiday we're going to keep after Mashiach comes. No more Pesach. You don't have to worry about your menu. Okay? No more cleaning the house. Ladies, we're free. We're really free. Right? Only Purim. It says the only holiday that will have any relevance to us is the holiday of Purim. Hmm. Why? Oh, my gosh. How much time do we have? Okay, so if we want to understand that, we have to understand why there's no mention of God in the Megillah. It's the only holy book where you go through it and God's name is not mentioned. Okay? I wonder if that means if you drop it, if you have to fast, for you have to kiss it. I guess you do because it's holy, right? It's, it was written. Who was the Megillah written by? Anybody know? It was written by Mordechai and Esther. Yeah, it's, it was written with Ruach HaKodesh. It's, one of, it's, it's Tanakh. Do you know the term Tanakh? What does Tanakh stand for? Right? And the Ketuvim are the Megillot, right? The five Megillot. So that's when the holy canon was closed. Okay? But they're all considered to be written with divine inspiration, with Ruach HaKodesh. Bordechai and Esther were the, some of the last prophets. Mordechai and Esther, remember, the Jews lived happily ever after, after the is over, except for one person, Esther. She goes back to the palace. She's still married to that poor, big anti-Semite, right? She does not live with her people. She's still being Jewish in a, well, maybe she can be in a more open way now because she finally revealed her secret. Another theme in the Megillah that she's not allowed to say which people she's from, right? All this hiddenness, all this hiding, okay? What does this have to do with the fact that Purim will be the only holiday that we celebrate after Mashiach comes? All this hiding, all this hiddenness, the fact that God's name isn't mentioned, though it's alluded to. I wanted to tell you that every time it says in the Megillah, HaMelech, but it doesn't say that. Achashverosh after it. It's not talking about the king Achashverosh, even though the story's about him. and Of course, it's referring to him, right? After Vashti's killed, it says the king. The king became very angry, right? They're talking about Achashverosh, but they're also talking about the big king, okay? The big king got very angry because, you know, and his anger burned in him. Okay, so, and because of that, he kills Vashti. So here too, we also see something about anger, just as an introduction to our anger thing, right? That when a person's angry, they do all kinds of stupid things, right? And we know biologically, what happens is the blood rushes to your brain. Okay, when you're, you go into fight and flight, you can't think straight. It's like an animal, a lion is, chasing you through a jungle all of a sudden because somebody made that comment or didn't put away something that you asked them to six times or put something where you slipped over it, you know, whatever it is, right? And you're going to kill somebody, you know, head on the platter, right? But the point is, is that when we get angry, we, we sometimes and we very often regret the way we act. It's called ego dystonic. We feel this ego dystonic, which means, who was that? Was it me, was it yelling and screaming like a banshee? Or like my husband called one of my daughters. You sound like a fishmonger's wife. I don't know what that means. She didn't either, you know? That became a family tradition, you know? But anyway, um, the point is, is we do rash things when we're angry and we see this because what happens uh H- Haman makes up the next morning and he's really, really sad that he's that he's killed his wife, right? And so right away his his advisors say, Okay, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, we're gonna get you a new queen. It's okay, it's okay, right? And Anyway, before that, there's this whole thing about how they tell him, you know, you have to get rid of Vashti because if you don't get rid of Vashti, and this is really interesting, too, you have to get rid of Vashti because Vashti doesn't listen to her husband. And if you don't get rid of her, it's going to send a message to all the women in the kingdom that they can defy their husbands. The feminist movement is about to begin. We must squash it. We must, you know. Before it begins, and the way we're going to do this, King Achashverosh is by your sending a very clear message about what happens when a woman does not listen to her husband, or he puts all oh, she puts olives in a dish, whether he doesn't like olives, you know, or peppers or whatever it is. This is what needs to happen to this woman. Okay, so so that's why uh, he's convinced that he should get rid of, uh, of this wife. Okay. So but after these things, when his wrath subsides, look in P- at chapter two, he remembers Vashti and he starts thinking about how beautiful she was. How She wasn't such a bad wife after all, you know, and what, what, what she had done and what had decreed against her. And right away, of course, they say, OK, before you can get angry at all of us for telling you to kill her, let's do something quick. We're going to make a party. And we're going to, I mean, sorry, we're going to make a beauty pageant and we're going to um, find a new queen. Okay, so let's go back to our end. Let's end this now because let's go back to our questions, okay? First question was, why is there no mention of God in in, in this Megillah? And the second question, which is related, is why is it that of all the holidays, when Mashiach comes, the only one will celebrate is Purim, okay, so Purim and the time that we're living in now are very much connected. First of all, it's interesting to see that we're living in a very similar time to Purim, right? Last week was the Shabbos of hate, did you know about this? I was in America, okay? So I was at a hotel in Connecticut. There was extra security, like guys with huge rifles, okay? And people with uh, undercover jobs. That was just in this little hotel in Connecticut. So interesting that they chose the month of Adar to make their hate campaign. Literally, if you saw the proclamation, it called the Jews vermin, like the Nazis used to call us. Right. And all the great anti-Semites. OK, so they made this event in the month of Adar, which interestingly, Hamun chose this month because he figured this is a really bad month for the Jews. Because, you know, who died yesterday in this month? Moshe Rabbeinu, their greatest leader. So this should be a really good month to get those Jews. Right. But what he didn't know, we're told, is that Moshe was also born. On the same day that he died. Oh, well, you messed up, Haman, right? But isn't it interesting that, you know, if people think that Purim were just commemorating something long ago, it's not long ago. It's the same story, right? It, it, it's the same story that's recurred throughout Jewish history over and over again. The anti Semites come and wake us up to our mission, they wake us up to us being lost in history. They give us a chance to reconnect to Hashem because we have nowhere else to run. Nobody wants to help us. The Jews left Nazi Germany. How many countries let them in? How many countries did they find out were not their friends either? Even if they weren't actively throwing them into ovens, right? So we're living in a time, just like in the Purim story of darkness, exile. We, we, we recount the miracles of Passover because it keeps us going through this very long exile. We are likened to a person who's walking in a very dark forest. Okay, by the way, Esther is compared to the morning dawn, the morning star. There's a tehillim that we say on Purim that's all about Esther. It's called Ayelet HaShachar. Shachar is the very first moment in the morning when the star, first star comes out. It's the time when the night is the blackest, okay? Morning starts, the morning star comes out right when the night, right after the blackest part of the night. That's the time we're living in when we talk about exile, okay? That's when they were living, that's what we're living in. Again, it's like somebody walking through a forest with a tiny little candle, and they're using this little candle to make sure that they don't bump into trees and they don't fall into holes <laughs> and they don't, you know, get, you know, stuck on some kind of branch that doesn't allow them to move, et cetera, et cetera. But as soon as the morning dawn begins to come, as soon as the sun begins to rise, and the person in the forest can make out things much more clearly. The person realizes, what do I need this candle for anymore? What am I doing with this candle? You know, I can blow it out because now I can see clearly. Okay. The work of Purim, and the reason God's name is empty, is not there in the Megillah, is because the Purim story, the main, one of the main themes of the Purim story is: God says, I'm hiding, but I'm still here. Where am I hiding? I'm hiding between, between what people like to call everyday coincidences. As I read today a quote that I love, coincidences are God's way of doing miracles anonymously. Okay? The point of this world, the word olam, I don't olam right? The word olam means hidden. Because God says, I created this physical material world, and I'm hiding behind it. I'm peeking through. I'm here. You don't see me, but I'm here. It looks like I'm not. But your job, Jewish people, is to find me. Because it's not like olden times when you had that first temple and everything was open miracles and you went through the the crossing of the sea and you experienced the 10 plagues, you saw what happened to people who defy God. Since that time, you've been living in Dallas without prophets, without open miracles. You had Hanukkah, you had the story of Purim, but since then we haven't had any other holidays, right? No new holidays since then. Unless you know something I don't know. Anybody over there in Zoom land? Marlene, are you paying attention? Get off your phone. Okay. All right. I'm testing you on this tomorrow. Okay. Um, so again, what happened in the Purim story? We re-found God. We found him behind nature. We found him behind the everyday coincidences We realize that God never abandoned us. He just went into hiding because he wanted us to make an effort to find him. If God's doing, you know, sound and light shows all the time and spilling the sea and doing all this stuff, it's like, wow, this is great. You I'm giving me money from heaven, but I don't much have to do much. Okay. It's like when a mother or a father is teaching a kid how to walk, right? They just start walking, right? And what do we do? We keep taking a few steps. Oh, you know, fall down. Okay. Get up. Come on. Come on. Come on. Right. So that's what Hashem was doing with us. Come on. Come, come and find me. Cause you have a choice. It's either me or the anti Semites who want to destroy you. Okay. And it's always been the same. It's always been that choice or it's complete uh, assimilation and goodbye and marrying out and forgetting your purpose and your mission in this world and the incredible, unique relationship. So just to end, just to sum that up. The reason why we continue to celebrate Purim is because Purim is is the muscle that we flexed, where we were able to see Hashem in the dark with the little candle. And now that the dawn is there, it's like we celebrate the fact that we can appreciate the dawn even more because we never stopped looking for it. We never stopped walking on the path, even when it was dark with that little candle, hoping and praying and never giving up on this promise that Hashem made that at some point, whenever it will be, there will be a dawn and the darkness of exile will be gone forever. And it won't just be good for the Jewish people, It will be good for all of mankind, right? And that's what we believe. And that's where we hope we're heading to. And so Purim is as relevant now as it was then. And it will always be relevant because we're always celebrating the light that we put in effort and that will never be lost. That effort will never be lost. It makes us greater, right? That we put in when times were very dark. Okay. Thank you very much, ladies in Zoom land. I guess you'll be missing all the pastries and oh my gosh, they brought sushi tonight. <laughs> oh, they have the barbecue later. <laughs> okay, but you'll come next week. All right, love you all. Thank Bye. you. Thank you. You're welcome. Exameh. Axamaya. A frail Deborah, you didn't talk about you. the costumes. <laughs> Oh, the costumes. <laughs> oh, Penny, come on. You have to come here to hear about the costumes. The oh, costumes are all yeah. about hiding, hiding, hiding. The theme of Purim is hiding. God was hiding. So we also hide. Because but sometimes we hide. when you hide, when you're invisible, you can actually do more stuff. You know, it's like superpowers are always invisible. They can go anywhere and do anything. Hiding sometimes gives you power. For example, when we're hidden, we feel more, less self-conscious than when we're, right? When you're behind a mask, you feel like nobody knows who I am. I can I can be anybody I want to be. I mean, I could be a fireman if I'm wearing a fireman costume, <laughs> you know? And, you know, it's like on Purim, I can be whoever I can, I want to be. And there's nothing stopping me because behind that costume I can imagine that I'm anybody anyway whatever that's a whole nother it's, <laughs> it's also the hiddenness okay Penny if you Thank want the you. triple scoop ice cream you'll have to come out next week okay, okay. I, I ho- I'm glad that you're okay but I really truly was on my way down last week when I know. It was sorry. <laughs> okay. God willing, next week again. Yeah. It's a show. God willing. God willing, next week. Yes. Okay. Love you. Okay. Thanks for coming, Take Judy. Care. Nice to see you, Renee. Oh. All the way from New York, Brooklyn. <laughs>